He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also, verse 18, the head of the church, or the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Father, may Christ be first in all our lives, especially within the church. Father, help us to anchor ourselves to Christ, our sure and steady anchor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The, as we read through Scripture, the central problem with man is that he's a sinner. We see that very on in the early book of Genesis. It sounds very simple. It sounds very elementary uh, for us this morning. But at the most fundamental level, when you think about it, sin is really an act of rebellion against an authoritative figure. It is an act of rebellion against God. It is an act of rebellion or disobedience to a higher law, a higher lawgiver. You could say that sin is an act that is caused because one does not want to submit to an authority. Before Adam and Eve fell within the garden, we read in Job and other places that the exceedingly great angel Satan he disobeyed God. He, he had pride built up within him and he ultimately wanted to be God. He desired to be God. His desire was not God's desire. He wanted the authority and did not want to submit to the one true authority above him. Therefore, God cast him out with other angels. And then as we read in Genesis chapter 3, we see man defy his authority. We see man defy his creator. The lawgiver, his lawgiver, the ultimate authority of the universe, God. And from that moment on, submitting to authority has, has always been an issue with mankind. Whether it be an authority within the household, whether it be an authority within the workplace, whether it be an authority with a, a, a wife or a husband, whether it be an authority with government, whether it be an authority ultimately with the greatest authority of all, that being God. Man has had an authority issue defying what God has said, defying what others have said and, and that is in, in authority over them. Anti-authority, anti-submissiveness, it is, it is the name of the game today. It runs rampant within our society. Lawlessness within the streets of Memphis. Turn on your news and you see lawlessness, anti-authority within the streets of Memphis that, that run rampant because one, authority doesn't want to wield the sword that it's been given by God. It has the sword that it can yield. Choosing to choosing not to yield the sword is what authorities have chosen not to do within some of our bigger cities. Choosing not to hold the criminals accountable. And two, those under the authority of the laws of the land, they choose just not to obey them. They believe their self-governing authority is much more important than the laws of the land. And ultimately, it's not just the laws of the land that they're choosing to disobey, but it's disobedience to God at the very fundamental level of it because they are disobeying those whom God has ordained to govern them. It is God who has set them up. 
And, and you can look at it and say, yes, but those people, Blake, are unbelievers. They're, they're pagans. They, 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 they run rampant because they don't know God. And, and, and while that's true, absolutely, there is a yes and no to that, to that, that statement though. Yes, they are unbelievers and, and they have yet to have their hearts cut and to, and to, uh, yield to their maker and their savior in, in a saving faith. But they're also not without excuse, as we learned this morning in our Fundamentals of Faith classes. They have it written upon their conscience that they know what is right and they know what is wrong. So they're without excuse. But I want you to see that it's not just the pagans or the unbelievers that are running anti-authorianism and and anti-submissiveness. And it's not running through just the streets. It's not just them that we can point to and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not them. It's not just them who struggle with authority. It it, it runs rampant within the realms of religious institutions, and it runs rampant in the realms of evangelicalism as well, anti-authorityism. Jesus, He famously said right before His ascension that all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Given to whom by whom? He's divine Himself, but Christ submits to His authority in His human nature. He submits. It didn't come from Jesus, He said. Jesus, he, it come from God. That's who His authority came from. Jesus emptied Himself of His own divine prerogative, Scripture tells us. And in John chapter 7, verses 14 and 18, he, John says, or He writes this, "...but when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up in the temple and He began to teach." The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but it is he who has sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness within him. There's the answer. Jesus says, my authority comes because I don't speak upon my own prerogatives. I don't speak upon my own authority on my thoughts and my feelings. I don't speak for myself, but I speak for God who has sent me. And in John chapter 12, verse 49 through 50, he says this, For I did not speak on my own initiative. There it is again. But the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know this commandment is eternal life. In other words, if I speak the Word of God which has been given me, it produces eternal life. He says, therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Where did Jesus get His authority? It was because He spoke the Word of God. That's where he got his authority. He he could command with authority because he he was reiterating what God had said. He had reiterated what God had said in the Scriptures. He had reiterated what God had said to Christ. Christ's authority was was a problem to the most religious people upon the planet. Those who said that they served Yahweh, but yet they did not want anything to do with Yahweh. They didn't want to submit to His authority as a word. They believed their authorities... They, they believed that they were the authorities, not Christ. But you see, Christ never asked them for their permission to do any of His teachings. He never asked them for permission to do any of His ministries or His healings. That's what ticked them off. He didn't even ask them for their advice on any religious matters. So they killed Him. They can't have anything to do with Him. Anti-authority. Don't want anything to do with Christ. He's messing us up. I want to self-govern myself. 
But it was only for him to rise three days later and say this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Good luck, good try. You can't subvert my authority. Christ had authority because He was the rightful heir to all things. He had authority because He spoke not His own words, but the words of the Father. And as Jesus returned to heaven, He 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 leaves the church within the hands of the apostles. Now the apostles were not to take His word and to go and do what they pleased. They were not to go on their own divine prerogatives, but they were to teach what Christ had given them, what Christ had spoke, what Christ had taught them. They were to speak that. They were to teach that. They were to continue to preach the Word of God, preaching and teaching what God had commanded them. As the apostles died, we see that they give it over to the elders. They give it over to the leaders of the church. They weren't to go on their own tangents or preaching their own thoughts or their own opinions. Rather, they were to continue to preach the Word of God. That was what Paul told Timothy. He says, preach the Word in season and out of season. Paul told Titus, you speak these things and exhort these things and will reprove with all authority. Not some overbearing authority or exercising your own prerogatives and the power of your own personality or ideas or wants or designs. No, Titus, you preach with authority commanding men by virtue of Scripture to understand what God has said and you obey it and you teach it. But throughout centuries, man has waned from honoring the Word of God. And has waned from the authority of God and Christ. So-called churches have failed to submit to the sovereign's word and the things that is, has spoken. Man has rebelled against his lordship, disregarding and denying, distorting the truth that has been revealed, mishandling the word of God and misrepresenting the one who has said it and wrote it. Traditions have replaced the divine's commands. Opinions and prerogatives, they've replaced objective truths within Scripture. And the 16th century saw the rise of, of and the pinnacle of the Catholic tradition. The Catholic Church said it was the one true church. And the, the Pope, he was the only authority at the time. The laity, they, they were the ones that were delivering the authority of the Pope. And it, and it also saw the beginning of the Reformation. An inevitable an explosion and of consequences of when, when men armed with nothing but the Word of God, they yield the Word of God and they see coming, coming crashing down against anti-authoritism uh, uh, Catholics and, 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 the, and the Roman Catholic Church. That is what happens when men yield the Word of God as a reformation within not only England but around the world. They wielded the sword and they thrust it against the man-made religion, a false religion. Sola Scriptura, the battle cry of the reformers, swept through the halls of the universities. It supplied the fortitude within the pulpits of the church. It escoped through the fields of the countryside and it marched its way even to the throne of the king at the time. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. It teaches us that Scripture is the only sole infallible rule of faith for the church. You say, why is that? Because it's nothing different than what Jesus was doing. He was teaching the divine God-breathed Word of God. God-breathed revelation, special revelation as we saw this morning in our class. It's the Scriptures and them alone that provide the voice of our Lord, speaking to every generation with divine power and an ever-new urgency. For the Reformers, the authority didn't lie within the papacy or the laity. The authority of the church lied only with the authoritative, infallible, inerrant Word of God. It is the Word of God that is powerful. It is life-altering. It is wholly sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped for the ministry.
adequate and equipped for every good work. Where man with his opinions is fallible, the Scripture, as Luther said, never err. The battle for truth rages on today. Not only in our society where we battle the sentiment that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man, but it's within the church and evangelicalism today. Can a woman be a pastor? Can I live in unrepentant sin and still serve within the church? Should we practice church discipline? That seems a little harsh to excommunicate someone because they're living in unrepentant sin. Should we water down the gospel to get people within the doors so that they should like us and and become like the world so that the world will come into our gathering? But our traditions say this. This is what we're to do, or this is what our denomination does, so that therefore we are to do that. As the church, we have a divine mandate. As John has said it, as Phil has said it, we have a divine mandate to submit to the authority of God and to His Word. We must look to His Word and we say, What saith you, God, and I will do it? That, I think, is the hope of the leaders here at Grace Bible Church is, is that when you come to the Word of God and, and at the end of the day we say, what does the Word of God say? What does it say? And I will follow it. As the church, we must be dedicated to studying and obeying Scripture. We also come to the... And as we do that, we come to, we come to the topic of church governance. John brought it up last week as we're reading in the book of Titus. This is an excursion on biblical eldership, if you haven't already figured this out. John brought us it last week into Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where he, he, Paul tells Titus, you go and you appoint elders as I directed you. Well, that comes to the topic of what is an elder. We're going to get into that here in just a second. But that, that brings us to the topic of church governance and, and the mandate that flows from the inspired Word of God. Our, our understanding of the nature, the mission, the purpose, the commission, and the form of the church must be fir- first and foremost come from a careful and consistent exegesis of God's Word. Here at Grace Bible Church, it is our goal, it is our mission, it is our duty, whatever you want to call it is that we see that our lives are directed according to what God's Word says. John says it all the time. We tether ourselves to Scripture. We want to teach, as Paul tells Titus, sound doctrine, teaching that are in accordance with Scripture. We, have, we want to have an uncompromised commitment to God's Word, honoring and glorifying God by honoring His Word. And in one way or another, we we've, think about it. We We've all probably been exposed to not-so-sound doctrine in our lives, in our church life. I've been in church for 40 years. My mom has had me in church for 40 years. And through that time, I have seen some not-so-sound doctrine teached, practiced. A lot of that coming maybe from not understanding maybe how to understand or how to study your Bible, potentially. Or, or being taught something wrong and not being a Berean and going and checking the Word and what it says. You have that. You can go do that. We, in fact, encourage that is what I say, what Phil says, what John says, what anybody says, is we check it with the Word of God. And maybe just taking the pastor or teacher's word for it. Sometimes you get the extreme and you see a pastor is advocating for something that is clearly within Scripture. You see this a lot in denominations today, and they choose just to ignore it. I do not permit a woman to teach. I do not permit a woman to preach. 
pretty clear. It's pretty clear. That's in the context of uh, uh, assembly of worship uh, from, from this pulpit. Paul is clear. But we've grayed the lines. We actually read that and we can see that, but we can say, I, I don't believe that. We see that in denominations today. For some pastors, a lot of pastors, as pastors and leaders and teachers of God's Word, we don't, we don't get that choice to avoid His teachings. We don't get the choice to say whether I'm going to teach this or that or leave this or that out. That, that's not the pastor's job description. The pastor has a mandate to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. The bride of Christ is a divinely ordained and ordered institution as we talked this morning. Uh, and it must function as God has willed and intended. We don't get to dictate on how we would dress up the bride. As John showed the video last week of Paul Washer, it is not our job to dress up the bride because the king has been gone so long so that she may look palatable to the world. We don't get a chance, and it's not our job to prostitute the Word of God in the church and the bride of Christ to the world. That is not being a good steward of, the, uh, of, of, God's, of Christ's bride, not our bride. It's not my bride. It's not John's bride. It's Christ's bride. There are specific instructions as to what the bride must look like while the king is gone on his long journey. And last week, like I said, John taught on Titus chapter 5, and we see in Scripture where Paul told Titus to put what remains in order and appoint elders to every city. Paul reminds Titus of his service to the Master and encourages him to do the work of the one who has been called into his great service. But Paul also equips Titus with clear directions as to how Christ's church is to function and is to be managed and is to be governed specifically what type of men are qualified to lead the bride? He doesn't just leave it with anybody. Thus, Titus's main job was to put in order these churches that are already in existence throughout these cities on the island of Crete and churches that were deficient in their organization and they were in need of sound doctrine that leads to godly living. In fact, listen to what Nehemiah Cox, a 17th century pastor and theologian, he stated about this verse here. He says, The edification and beauty of the church is much concerned in order. Not such an order as superstition will dictate or litigious nicety, that means fighting over the preciseness of very small, unimportant details, but contends for, but such as we have already described, which sets her in a conformity with Christ's will, and particularly the filling up of the offices that he has appointed with persons duly qualified for the administration of them, and the regular acting both of offices and members of their respective positions. What Cox states here is true. The church is at her most glorious when she conforms to Christ's will, is what he's saying. Especially when it comes to how the church is managed and governed. And think about it. John brought this up last week. Is How naive we must be think, to think that Christ who gave His life for His glorious bride, He took on the full wrath of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. He works in the hearts of His bride to bring about conviction, brokenheartedness, repentance through the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. And, and, and as He does that, Christ sanctifies His people with His Word, setting them apart for righteous work, providing the necessities of both life and the practice of our faith, but he didn't leave specific instructions as to how his bride is to be organized and to be led. How naive we must be able to think that way. James White, he states this, It is not his, being Christ, intention that his church be a mass of confusion, but instead be an orderly, organized entity with a specific purpose and intention. 
And with that, that's a hearty amen. And so it is with these thoughts this morning, this, this dialogue this morning, as well as the infancy of Grace Bible Church, that the leaders decided that, that it would be good to take a quick detour to biblical eldership because of Titus has brought in this, or Paul has brought in this word of elders. And, and, and so we wanted to take a quick detour. John last week brought the, the fact that, uh, that the church is to be made up of a plurality of elders, to have a plurality of elders as their leaders, as those who help govern the church. I'm going to bring, I'm going to back up and I'm going to actually teach what an elder is this morning. And then next week, Phil's going to bring what is the function of the elders? What is their function? And as we walk through the book of Titus, we're going to see the qualifications of these men. Qualified. God is the one who sets the qualifications. And so in order to defend biblical eldership, we have only one place to go and that is within Scripture. We don't hang on to man's tradition, man's wisdom, man's thoughts, man's ideas, but we hang on to God's plan for His church. And really, all you have to do is look at history and, and see what the church, as it drifts from sound biblical teaching and leaves the Scriptures, what happens. A noted Reformation historian, he from the 18th and 19th century, states this issue with wonderful precision. He says this, for those that, as we drift from the sound doctrinal teaching, as we advance through the centuries, light and life begin to decrease in the church. He asked the question, why? Because the torch of Scripture begins to grow dim and because the deceitful light of human authorities begins to replace it. And isn't that what we've seen over the centuries with, with churches? You can see it today is that the light and the life begin to decrease because men want to use their own prerogatives, their own opinions, their own words, their own wisdom, their own traditions, and not holding tall the light of Scripture. Reformations happen within the church only when men stand upon the Word. And when, when, when the church has gone through low valleys within uh, in its history is because men have not stood upon the Word of God. And it is upon the pinnacle of the church history that we see when we see Reformation happen is when men and women and they stand and they hold the Word of God in its rightful place as the authority and we govern our lives to the authority of Scripture. That is sola scriptura. That is what fueled the Reformation and that is our prayer today is that what fuels the Reformation within Covington, within Tipton County, within West Tennessee, within the world. Even today, you hear a lot of pastors, they, they say that we hold to the Bible. We teach the Bible. We preach the Bible. We're Bible-centered church, yet at the same time, they disregard Scripture's clear teaching on what Christ's church is supposed to look like. The, the teaching of sound doctrine, the administration of the Lord's Supper and believers' baptism, the, the uh, uh, church discipline, as well as our topic today, church governance. And really what it boils down to is, is this is the question for us today, is the Bible specific upon church governance? Is the Bible specific about how God's uh, uh, church is to be governed? Or, or does it just provide a basic framework by which we can tweak and twist and figure it out? How, there's a spectrum on how we want to govern the church. We, we get the, well, there's some grace there on how God wants to uh, uh, govern His church. I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. Is that God is very specific on how he's to govern his church, who's to govern his church, 
Who is set in stewardship and authority over His church? What is over authority of His church? And whom? One of the things I think we see in modern day evangelicalism is the Americanization of not only the gospel, but the Americanization of the church. We, we run it so much like a, a democratic society. We run it so where we, or, or, or a constitutional republic. We as Americans, you know, mm, America, right? Make America great again. That, hey, I'm, I'm down for that. Doesn't work good in the church though. We're not a republic. The, the, the church doesn't govern by a, re- a group of representatives where this group is coming to this representative. I want this, and I want this, and I want this. We come in and vote. That's not how the church is to be run. That's not in, that's not in the pages of scripture. I've been part of several churches, and I know you have, that I, I've never seen this done right, to be honest with you. I've either been a part of a church where a pastor has a, a deacon board. Well, the deacons meet and, and they, they talk about things that are, uh, that are, that are critical to the church, but yet, and they bring it to the pastor. Hey, pastor, we'd like you to bring this or put this into order. And they bring it before a congregation and the congregation votes on it. It's a 50-50 chance. It's a, the, the deacons may disagree, but the congregation may agree on it. The deacons don't have that authority. They're not qualified for that. But I've seen that happen, that the deacons are running it. Well, the congregation is ruling the church where the pastor takes his cues from the congregation. Or, as Phil is going to present next week, he'll talk a little bit more about this, where it's just the pastor himself, a sole man in charge of a flock. Very dangerous. We've seen a pastor meet with a committee of people who are supposed to represent the church, and from there the committee along with the pastor makes decisions for the church so that the committee becomes the elders. But these aren't biblical patterns that we see within Scripture. It's not what Scripture holds. The leadership body here unanimously holds the view that the structure of the church is clearly seen within Scripture and to go beyond it is to seek to improve upon the divine wisdom of God. And, and that's not something that I want to be stepping in. That's something that I'm not qualified in and I'm certainly not, I don't think that you're qualified in. And it's not some trivial matter though. It, it's not something that we just want to say, well, you do your thing over there. You're autonomous, you can do yours, and I'll do mine over here, and we'll just do church as we please to do. That's an unorganized bride. That's a chaotic bride. Well, as pastors, as a church, it's our job to get it right, to be meticulous. We recognize that Jesus Christ alone, as we read here, is the head of the church in Colossians. He also is the head of the body of the church. It is Christ And we gladly submit to His Word and the sole authority within the church. And the truth of it is, the biblical writers, as they were spurned on by the Holy Spirit, they understand the influence of leadership. The Bible is clear on how the church is to be governed, the qualifications of those who are shepherding her, who can be a shepherd, and how they're to function and to what their duties are. It's not a trivial matter. It's very important. And really when we go to Scripture and we can point to what God has clearly defined in His Word as to how His bride is to function this is what it does. It's not that it, oh, it takes some type of authority away from me. No, what it does is it causes us to glorify Him all the more. It causes us to glorify our King all the more. For really, who is in charge of the church? It's not me. It's not some pastor down the road, but it is Christ our Lord and Savior and Master. It's not some CEO or board of directors. It's not a church council or a laity or a pope or a bishop or a theologian even. 
It's Christ. Christ is our, is our head. He's in charge of His church, His bride. Colossians 1.18, He is the head of the church, of the body. That's why biblical eldership works. Why? It's because, because the elders, they don't take their own liberties and do what they want to do. They, 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 they're not some type of CEO. No, they do what Christ has commanded them to do. That's why we can't bring a business model or some managerial model into this scenario. It does not work. We don't have CEOs. We don't need executive decisions to be made for the executive decision has already been made by the one who gave his life for the bride. I don't need a chief executive officer to tell me what to do or a manager. I'm not a manager. I'm not a CEO. I'm not a director. Christ is our authority. His Word is our authority. There is no other authority that we yield to other than the authority of Scripture and Christ. Elders are here to do what Christ directs by virtue of the Bible, and they make sure that it's done. True Christianity has always been said... The Word is not under the church. The Word is over the church. The church is not the authority over the Word or over the souls of men. The Word is the authority over the church and the souls of men. That's why Catholics get it wrong. That's why the denominations down the street get it wrong. If you're not holding to the Word of God, you're missing the boat. God is the final authority. Dr. MacArthur, he says it right. He says, all binding spiritual commandments come from Him through the Scriptures alone. Councils have no authority. Fathers have no authority. Creeds have no authority. Articles have no authority. Traditions have no authority. And new revelations, they have no authority. Mark chapter 7, verse 8 says, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. As, as, as Solomon said, rightly in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. So that brings me, that's the initial thought this morning. <laughs> it's not even the teaching. What is an elder? What is an elder? What does that term mean from a biblical standpoint? I think one of the reasons that we get this term so wrong is because we just don't understand it. We don't, we don't have an understanding, a biblical understanding of what elders mean. What does that mean? It's, it's like a, it's, it's kind of an antiquated term. It's kind of fundamental when we think about it, you know. Um, uh, it, it would be like in this. If I were to told you a brigadier general, well, you're like, okay, hmm, I've heard that term. It's in the army. Now, only if you're in the army, you know what a brigadier general is, most likely, unless you've studied history. But what would you have to do if I told you, hey, what does a brigadier general do? You'd have to Google it. What is a brigadier general, right? I'd have to Google it. I don't know. I feel like that's what the term of elder is, is, is some kind of function in the, or some kind of uh, uh, a word that we have no clue what it means or the totality of what that word means. So not only do we understand what the function of the elder is, we not understand it, nor do we understand whose church it is. For it's not the elder's church. When I say the elder, what comes to mind? What word comes to mind? It's a rhetorical question. Is it a church board? Is it a lay official? Or could it be an influential people within the body of, of, of the local church? Uh, is, it, is, it, uh, is it wiser people who give counsel to the pastor? Is it that? Is that what you think? Do you, do you think, oh, they are the ones who are the policymakers? Or the financial officers or the, the administrators? 
Aren't those the ones who go inside a business meeting and have a committee and they vote on things uh, and majority wins out? Isn't that who an elder is? Is the elder a CEO of some t- sort or a director? Do you, and do you expect the elder to, to know and to teach and ex- exegete the Word of God? Is that, your, is that what you've been conformed to do? Have you been able to understand that or does he have some other function? You may say, well, Blake, I don't even know what an elder is. I have no clue. I've, I'm, I'm new to this, and, or I've heard that term before, but I kind of thought it was Presbyterian terms. I thought that was what the Presbyterians do, not fundamental people or Baptists or anything like that. Isn't that a Presbyterian model or Episcopalian model? Isn't an elder just a deacon or vice versa? It's our hope that I can answer some of these questions today, that Phil can answer some of these questions today, that John can answer some of the questions in the future is, is that, that we put a bow, we tie a bow around these questions and, 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 and understand what an elder is, what biblical eldership is, and what a plurality of eldership is. What's their qualifications, what's their roles, what's their functions within the church. First off, the New Testament writes, writers use three, I want you to understand, they use three primary Greek terms for uh, uh, to describe local church leaders. Three. First is presbyteros. Presbyteros is the Greek. That is the term where we get elder from. As we talked about, that's the Greek term, and it is translated in our New Testament Bibles, in our, in our Bibles today that you're holding, as elder, most likely. That is where you get that. Also, you have episkopos. That is the other Greek term. Episkopos means overseer. So where you see overseer in your Bible, the Greek word would be episkopos. And the third would be poimain. It's where we get the word shepherd from or pastor. So you have presbyteros, you have episkopos, and you have poimain. And I want you to understand is, is these are not three separate functions, but they are the same. They are the same person. They are the same function. They are the same role. That They, they are elder, overseer, and shepherd or pastor. They're the same. All three terms describe the same men. It's clear by their usage throughout the Scripture that the Holy Spirit intended to use these terms not in a sense that one has preeminence over the other, that the, that the bishop has preeminence over the elder where we see in some denominations. That's not the, that's not the, that's not the clear teaching of that. But other, uh, but rather to show that they are all of the same office, yet that office carries with it several different characteristics, several different functions that describe that office. And Phil's going to go into that in a little bit more detail next week. And it's vitally important that we understand these definitions. As John said last week, that words mean things. It's vitally important that we understand the biblical definitions of these words so that we can rightly understand what eldership means. Words and, and, diff- and definitions, they're important. And when we don't define words correctly, and when we twist them and we throw them over on this denomination and stuff like that, and we get off track, that, or that's when we get off track. In fact, that's how false teachers operate, is that they define words differently. They take this and they define it differently than what the original text was meant to do. That's how a false teacher reacts and, and does. In fact, Nigel Turner... One of the world's foremost Greek grammarians, he writes this. He says, The church today is concerned about communicating with the contemporary world and especially about the need to speak in a new idiom, that being a form of expression. The language of the church had better be the language of the New Testament. To proclaim the gospel with new terminology is hazardous when much of the message in valuable overtones 
that are implicit in the New Testament might be lost forever. Most of the distortions and dissensions that have vexed the church, get this, observed the late Dean of York, where these have touched theological understandings, have arisen through the insistence of sects or sections of the Christian community upon words which are not found in the New Testament. They're both right. When the language of the Bible gets distorted, when, it's, when it's, it comes very hazardous to the health of the church. And, and nowhere do we see this definition problem more evident than we do with the leaders of the church. That's why I believe we see the distortion within the church that we see today. And John said this, this is, I'm quoting him, is that's why, could it be that we see the distortion and the fraction within evangelicalism within the church today is because we have messed up church governance so much that we, we haven't even gone back to the, what it says and how we're to govern churches. Maybe that's why we see it in such a shambles today. Evangelicalism today is because we, we, we can't even, uh, or the, the dysfunction in it is because we don't even get the basic function of the governance of the church correct. So I want to look at just a few words and definitions here. This presbyteros. This presbyteros, it's, a, it's the word for elder. It's used at least 67 times within the New Testament, and it's used in several different ways. The most common usage of this term is reference to someone who's older or advanced in age. That's where we get this term elder. It makes sense. I hear elder, or someone who's advanced in age, older. The story of the prodigal son in Luke is a good example. He records this. Now his older, that's presbyteros, son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. John chapter 8, verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older presbyteros ones, and he was left alone in the woman where she was in the center of the court. So presbyteros at its basic is an older person, could be. It's also used in the New Testament to refer to Jewish elders, Forty-four times that we see this in the New Testament throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts where it's referring to the Jewish leaders who were vehemently opposed to Jesus. So these were men, they were wise men, not too wise because they were opposed to Christ, but they were, they were wise but in, in their own uh, liking, but they were older, they were wise, they were the ones who were given counsel. They were kind of the, the, the people, the judges, and those who were making discernments and stuff. That was what was going on. In fact, Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. They must be rejected by the wise ones, those older ones, presbyteros, and chief priests and scribes. So they were not only rejected by the chief priests and scribes, but they were, uh, uh, reje- he was rejected by the elders and be killed and raised up on the third day. Matthew chapter 15, 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples, they break the tradition of the elders, presbyteros, for they do not wash their hands when they had eaten and bur- uh, uh, eat bread. In fact, this isn't a New Testament term. John, he brought it up last week, so I won't go over it too much. But in the Old Testament, we see this term, uh, elder, used. In fact, it, it, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for elder, as it's, as it's uh, translated, is zakain. That is zakain. And, and in the Septuagint, which we talked about this morning, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, we, we see as, as they translated the Bible from the Greek, zakain, and they put it into the Greek, or the Hebrew Bible, and put it into the Greek. As they took zakain, they actually used the word presbyteros. So if you went to the Septuagint today, you would see, and as you were reading the Old Testament Scripture, you would see presbyteros. Same word we have here in the old, in the New Testament. 
John, he, he took us again through these passages in, in Numbers chapter 11 and in Deuteronomy 27. We see that the elders have always been God's model for leading His chosen people. We, we, we see it uh, uh, as well as that being the 70 tribal leaders who helped Moses judge and to lead. These men also led the Passover, which we see in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. And in 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 16 and 30, we see the elders specifically involved with the leadership of Israel. Uh, they were involved in the decision-making, for they were older, wiser men who could help the people resolve conflicts and, and give counsel and help oversee the details of an orderly society. It was a group of men. There's another Hebrew word, Shev. Shev is another word for elder in the Old Testament. We actually see it in the book of Ezra. And it's referring to a group of Jewish leaders who were in charge of rebuilding the temple. And it simply means gray-headed. You can use it in a sense today. Phil is Shev. Wouldn't work too well because you got American and Greek together or Hebrew, so it doesn't work very well, but you get the point. Whether it's Shev or Zakain or Presbyteros, it doesn't matter. They're all the same thing. The Jewish people would have understood this term. They would have been very familiar with an elder, what it meant, mostly in the sense of it being a man, being older, being wiser, could judge righteously and fairly, capable of exercising discernment, having experience, a man of truth and integrity, one who represented someone else. Alexander Strzok, in his book, Biblical Eldership, he says the elders were the eyes, they were the ears, and they were the voice of the people. To speak to Israel's elders was to speak to the people. We also see the term in the book of Revelation, as those referring to the 24 elders who are sitting around the throne. Presbyteros, Revelation 4.4, and around the throne were 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. But fourthly, we see this term presbyteros used in the context of our Titus text and many others for spiritually mature leaders within the church. And it makes sense for the initial church, think about it, was Jewish and they understood the concept of elder rule. As John MacArthur says, elder was the only commonly used Jewish term for leadership that was free from any connotation of either the monarchy or the priesthood. He goes on to say that's key. Because the church is co-regent with Christ. So there isn't an earthly king. Christ is our king. And unlike national Israel, the church has no specifically designated earthly priesthood. That's why you don't see priest within the church. It's not a priest. Why? Because the New Testament clearly tells us that we are all priests. We are all priests. Believers are priests. We have access to God. The Holy of Holies in the, 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 the curtain has been torn in two as we sang earlier about the power of the cross. It's a perfect term that is to be used to best describe the kind of leadership that is ordained within the church. And the first glimpse that we see of this word being used within leaders within the church in the book of Acts is where we get this, that's where we get this picture of the birth and the church, the birth of the church and, and the early life of the church. Acts 14, 23. John read it last week. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying, through many tribulations we entered the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders, presbyteros, for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the apostles, they were going throughout preaching the gospel. 
of Jesus Christ, seeing people birthed into the kingdom of God as well, and then they're seeing new churches birthed. That's what Paul was doing. As these early churches formed, the apostles were also devoted to appointing elders to these churches so that they were, they had oversight, they had order and encouragement from godly, wise, righteous men. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. These, these are the, this is the same word for elder, that's presbyteros. It, it's them who rule over the church. James 5, 14, if anyone's sick, he must call upon the elders so that they may pray over him. The elder's job is to pray upon them, pray over these people. So this term elder, presbyteros, as we transition into the birth of the church is the primary term that we see mostly for these men who are leading and, and, and governing the church. Second, we come to episkopos. Episkopos, epi. Epi meaning over, uh, skopos meaning seer, episkopos. It's a combined word, so we have overseer. It's also translated bishop. Probably, I don't know if it's in the King James, but it's also translated bishop as well. I think that's a bad translation. Here's why, because there's, there's negative connotations with bishop today. Right? We see in the LDS church of the bishops, they're the ones who actually have their own authority within the church. They have their own authority. They actually receive revelation from God. The, within the Catholic church, we see the, the laity be called the bishops. Bishop is another term, again, for just elder or overseer. That's all that means. It, it can be translated as guardian. I like that word, guardian. He, he, Phil's going to talk about this tomorrow, next week, is guards the flock. It, it simply means someone who has oversight over something or someone. Is an over, that's a beautiful picture of the shepherd, by the way. Therefore, overseer is a good translation, I believe, of this word. It really makes sense within our English vernacular. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including episcopos. Overseers and deacons. There's your two offices, by the way, in the church. Your only two offices you see. You can make a third for evangelists, but the two that we see clearly. Acts 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has what? Made you episcopos, overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul says this to Timothy regarding the elders. We're going to see this in the coming weeks, or overseer's qualification. He says this, an overseer, episcopos, then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse 9, for the overseer, he must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed or quick-tempered or addicted to wine or pugnacious nor fond of certain gain. So we have episcopos, overseer, and we have, we have um, um, presbyteros for elder. Finally, our third word is poimain. It is translated pastor or shepherd within the New Testament. And those two, are, two terms are interchangeable. Poimain is, is used in two ways. One is a noun, just meaning shepherd, and also one is a verb, the other being to shepherd something, right? It is the job, the, the past, the job of a pastor is a, of a shepherd and to shepherd. We just read the story of the incarnation last week, uh, or a couple weeks ago, and those in the field tending to the sheep, they were poimenos, or shepherding the sheep, to tend the sheep. Christ, he's also referred to as the poimane. I love this verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And in that verse, we actually see two of our words that we've already gone over 
uh, the, the poimain as well as episkopos. When you serve as an elder, you are not the elder, by the way. For Christ is the shepherd. He is the guardian. You are just an under-shepherd. You are a guardian up under the elder, the shepherd, the guardian, the overseer, Christ Ephesians chapter 4, 11, And He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. You see that word pastor, poimain. It's really the only time you see the word pastor there, but I just want you to understand. We could get into it a little later at some point. If you ask, ask me about, about that scripture if you want to. But poimain is used there. I just want you to know it is the same word as shepherd. Shepherd, pastor. It comes from a Latin word meaning to graze the sheep and the cattle, to help graze them, to pasture. That was pastoral. You hear that word. Nevertheless, what I want you to see, and hopefully I've made the case, is, is that the words shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop, whatever, they're all interchangeable. They're all the same thing. They just describe a different function of that same office. And it's clear in Scripture, Acts 20, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Speaking of those elders there, right? To shepherd the church of God which purchased with his own blood. There we see all three of them, overseer, shepherd, as well as uh, elder. Elders, shepherds, overseers in that one verse, all meaning the same thing. In the passage we're in today, or, or John, that we've been in, Titus 1, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, for the overseer must be above reproach. Finally, 1 Peter 5, 1-3, Therefore I urge elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, 1 Peter 5, 1-3, and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, poimenos, the flock of God among you, exercising episkopos oversight, a verb form of, uh, of episkopos, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to what? The will of God. And not with greed or with eagerness, not yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but providing to be examples to the flock. Peter directing these men who are elders to be shepherds and to be overseers. So elder is a biblical term, not a Presbyterian term, not a Methodist term, not a, 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 a Episcopalian term. It is a biblical term. And with that groundwork, really quickly, I want to just show you that this. I want to show you how it transitioned from the apostles to the elders. Really quickly, I want to show you this. Go to turn with me in the book of Acts, real quick. Acts. I want you to hold your place, <clears throat> Acts 15. In the book of Acts, we see the birth, the, the, the church birth at Pentecost. We see the Holy Spirit coming. We see men saved. Uh, after Peter's grand sermon, we see 3,000 people come to the knowledge of their Lord and Savior. And in Luke ch chapter, uh, in chapter 2, verse 42, he writes this. They, that being the new believers, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And in chapter 4 of Acts, we see the congregation. They were in need of something. They, 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 needed, they, needed, um, uh, they, they needed a need, and they, they come together as a... The, the apostles, they come together as a selfless, humble, united group. And they help to see that this church needs to share amongst themselves, meeting the needs of one another as the early church. And in verse 34 it reads, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses should sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and 
lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So in the early church, we see that the apostles, they took care of the, they took care of the bride. They were the ones in charge of the church. They did the teaching, they did the giving, they did the tending of the sheep, etc. But as the church grew, remember, there's very few apostles, many converts. As the church grew, we see their need for additional men to help with some administration. Again, think about it. Old Testament was an elder term. That's an old. We have men helping Moses out that are helping to govern Israel. We actually see it in the New Testament in Jerusalem as well as a group of men that are helping to govern Israel. Whether we're right or wrong, that was what they were doing. We also have the apostles. Now they're in a need. So what do they do? In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of great, good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word. And Phil, he's going to go into that a little bit more next week. So what did they do? They chose among them several, seven that would serve up under the apostles. There was no titles there. We don't see deacons. We don't see elders of them. But what we do see is a pattern. We see a pattern starting to progress throughout the New Testament that the apostles needed help. The church needed help of men to be helping govern them and and to help, uh, 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 help the bride of Christ. The, The first time we see the Christian church Elders is in Acts 11. I told you to Acts 15. Turn back to Acts 11. I'm sorry. Acts 11, verse 30. I'm sorry. Just a couple pages back. Acts chapter 11, verse 30. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be certainly be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had needs means each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending in charge of Barnabas and Saul and to with the elders. The apostles along with the elders. The money going to the church in Jerusalem that was taking up for their cause, this great famine in Jerusalem was put in charge, put in care of the elders. That's a weighty charge, by the way. To be put in charge of money, you're an important person in this in that grand scheme. You're, 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 there's much judgment. There's much care given to that money. There's much. There's there's much. I, I give. There's much responsibility with that. And by the time we get to chapter 15, within the context of the Jerusalem Council, where Paul and Barnabas battled the Judaizers, Judaizers from bringing circumcision upon the Gentile converts, we see the elders have a prominent role in the proceedings. Acts 15. Turn over to that scripture. Acts 15. 1 and 2. And you can underline these if you want to. And some men come down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning the issue. Basically, he's saying, let's take this, let's take this fight back to the home turf of Jerusalem. That's where we need to take this to, okay? And we got to press the debate there. In verse 4, And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Verse 6, And the apostles and the elders, circle that again, came together to look into this matter. 
So we see within Acts 15 where the apostles and the elders, they come together as the church's official leaders to share these deliberations. And Alexander Strzok writes, the elders' close association with the apostles demonstrates their significant position and role within the church of Jerusalem. Even though the elders could not claim the same distinction as the apostles, they represented at that time the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. So we see very early on within the church's birth that it became the elders' responsibilities and duties to fight the false doctrine, to fight the false teaching that emanated from Jerusalem. As Paul told Titus again, teach sound doctrine, refute error. That is the job of an elder. Verse 22 of that same chapter, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to who to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Not only money, but this letter they sent via the, the, the elders. So the picture in chapter 15 is that the Christian church elders, along with the apostles, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they heard and they judged ethical and doctrinal issues along with the apostles. They helped to resolve conflict using godly wisdom. They protected the church from false teachers. They bore the responsibilities for the doctrines that were taught by the members of the flock. And in Acts 21... We see the elders with James continue the same theme of facing difficult issues within the early church and working together, providing answers to sensitive theological questions. Therefore, these men, they had to judge wisely. They had to be peacemakers. They had to be arbiters of at the same time. And, and closing here, we see in Acts 13 and 14, Luke record Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. The, the gospel was exploding throughout the Gentile nations. After preaching the gospel, then the planning of the churches in these cities took place. And Luke records this in Acts 14.23. We've already talked about it. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord for whom they believed. Here we see the first appearance of Christian elders among Gentile churches. The other elders were among the Jewish churches right there in the heart of Israel. But this is the first mention we see within Gentile churches of appointing elders. Here we see that the leadership responsibilities have been given over to faithful, godly, wise, qualified men to lead these new churches. Elder rule was being established as the New Testament pattern of church governance. William Ramsey, he writes, not, not, a, not akin to the Ramsey family here, but he writes, he's the pioneer of New Testament archaeologists and expert on Luke's historical research. He states this, It is clear, therefore, that Paul everywhere instituted elders in this new church, and on our hypothesis as to the accurate and meth, uh, methodical expression of this story, we are bound to infer that this first case is intended to be the typical way of appointing elders or the appointment followed in, in, in all the other later cases. When Paul directed Titus to appoint elders in each Cretan city, he was doubtless thinking of the same method by which followed here in, the new, in, in Luke or in Acts. This was the model. Evangelize, set up churches, appoint elders. Evangelize, set up churches, appoint elders. Evangelize, set up churches, appoint elders. That's the New Testament model we see very clearly within Scripture. And here, this is, this is Paul as he ends his third missionary journey. He arrives in the harbor of Miletus. And as we read in Acts 20, verse 17, get this. He says this, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. And he called to him the elders, come to me. Paul summoned the Ephesian elders. He said, come to me. 
and he gives them an exhortation and he warns the leaders as to what is coming. And I'll leave it at this, but this is what he says. And Phil's going to pick up next week. Paul says in verse 28 of Acts 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He has purchased with His own blood. You shepherds, this is what He says, you shepherds, look at me, men. This is what I want you to see. You're going back and you've got to shepherd these, just this flock, not your flock, Christ's flock. You're going to shepherd them. You're going to be the overseers of them. You're going to be the poimains, the episkopos, the presbyteros over these people. You, you share the leadership responsibilities among yourselves. You're qualified men. You are called men who shepherd and they serve Christ and His bride. You have these qualifications, you have these roles, you have these functions. And what does he say? He says here, guard the flock, the wolves are coming. They're coming from outside and they're coming from inside. The wolves are coming. That is what the elder is to do. And he does it very meticulously and he does it by upholding the Word of God and proclaiming the Word of God. Does the church need organization today? You bet your bottom dollar it does. But it's not hard. It's not difficult. We make it so difficult. It's not complicated. Christ and His Word are clear on how it is to be governed. The giving of the elders to the church as under-shepherds to guard and minister to the flock, bringing their spiritual gifts with them, and together providing the necessary guidance the insight and the proclamation of God's Word needed within the local body, it is a gift of grace by God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a grand design of Your church. As we've seen throughout Titus how You have... This is not something on a whim. This is something actually that happened prior to time beginning how you set your love and affection upon us. And even as we failed in time and as we sinned, you sent Christ to die for his church, to live a righteous life for his church, and to defeat death. What a grand design. No one can make this up. We asked this morning to, in your churches around the country, within your bride, that the elders, the shepherds, the overseers, the bishops, or the, the pastors, that they'll heed to your word this morning. They'll cling to it with their very life as if they have nothing else to cling to, Father. As their life preserver, they cling to your word and they preach your word. They love your word. And Father, may we see the beauty in Your Word. May we see the beauty in how church government is done. Help us to do it rightly. Help us, Father. We're just, we're just sinful men who have been saved by the grace of God and are now called saints. Help us, Father, to get it right. And may Your church flourish. Not because the elders wield any type of authority because we cling to the one who has the only authority, that being Christ over his church. Thank you for this morning, for this word. Help us this morning. We need your help. We can only do it via the Holy Spirit as he works in the lives of believers to point us to your word, convict us of our sins. 
in our wrongdoings and show us the truths in your word so that we may obey them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.